out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Well, whatever you say, Jim. Welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Always bringing you the finest in indie pop from that golden decade and sometimes beyond. As you know, I like a good interview. Don't blame me, blame my mum. Yes, this is with the bass player, with the field mice, Mark Dobson, who I spoke to a few weeks ago to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Um, This is the interview. And also, just to say that Mark has um, set up a record table as well and has a new single out. So, pay attention. He will be talking about that towards the end. But anyway, we're going to find out the musical world of Mark Dobson, beginning at the start. Anyway, this is where we've been babbling. Well, I've been babbling for a few minutes and then asked him about his own musical journey. Mark, take it away. I just um, grew up in a, uh, in, a, uh, in a mining village in the northeast. Um, just never really felt part of anything that was going on around me, to be honest with you. I just kept my head down at school, didn't really enjoy it. Uh, and then got into punk music, which which a lot of people did, uh, which um, was the first time really that I, I felt a connection with anything, I, I guess. Um, yes. And wasn't really a good idea in terms of my own security uh, growing up in the mining village uh, because I mean, it seems strange now um, when very, very you know, it's very difficult to shock but back back in those days uh, just, you know, having different coloured hair or, or wearing strange clothes or, or liking music that people found really offensive, deeply offensive Um you really stood out. Um, you know, got beaten up a lot, uh, but didn't really care because I felt, I'd, I'd, you know, as I say, for the first time, I'd found something that that I that I felt connected to. Um, went to a comprehensive school, you know, big, quite violent. Um, found a few, and you're just searching for like-minded people. Uh, and you see somebody with a band badge on the on the lapel of their blazer, and you think, oh, right, he might be one of us, or she might be one of us. Um, so just desperately trying to connect with people, because um, I wanted to form a band. Everybody did. Um, that got in. That got into. You know, discovered punk music in their in their early teens. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and then eventually, you know, cobbled the band together from from. You know, people that wanted to be in bands, and, and you couldn't really pick and choose when you lived in a small village. You know, if, if there was someone who had a guitar who didn't really like the same music as you, you just ended up in a band with them and, and tried to find a, a compromise. Yeah. So just, just you know, played in bands, not very good bands, but, but really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, so, like, so without giving too much away, <laughs> but I'm in my mid fifties. So, were you a slightly similar age, as sort of watching the same top of the pops and the same sort of bands and being a bit excited by, you know, a bit? Of the yeah, pop- yeah, probably. I mean, I was round, you know, my uncle John's house. He was a nice guy, but very conservative. You know, it's, I think the only band he'd ever seen live was the Hollies, um, and just was round there when Top of the Pops was on and, you know, it's a big family, uncles, aunties, kids. Uh, and I remember the Sex Pistols coming on and 
I was amazed that they didn't turn the television off quicker, but they just all were sat there, open jawed, absolutely shocked by this. And I, I thought, I just thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. Not because I particularly liked the music, but I just saw the effect that it had on um, grown ups. Uh, and I thought, oh, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> they really, they really hate this. Um, so yeah, just I just got got into that sort of music, um, and you know. I, I think, you know, people were saying, you know, Punk was dead by sort of 1977, but, you know, we didn't really get it in the North East until 1978, 1979. Yeah. So we were always two, three years behind everybody else. So, yeah, just really got into that sort of music. Um, uh, made a single with a, with a, with a really bad band when I, when I was um, still at school because I came into some money. Um, through good fortune, uh, but just you know, I knew that as soon as I left school, or pretty shortly after I left school, that I was gonna that I was gonna have to move away. Um, ended up moving to London. Just really into music, big time. Got to see bands every night. Yeah. Uh, so were you during that period? Because because for the eighties, I put you know the sort of indie world as as sort of eighty three to eighty seven, which is basically. The years of the Smiths, let's face it. Um, so during that period, were you? did you go to university and find yourself in London or were you? God, no, no. Um, I mean, people where I grew up just didn't go to university. Nobody went to university. It just, just, just it, it was not something that would ever, you know, you might as well have said to me, do you want to go to the moon? Um, just, uh, you know, if, if you weren't very bright, you went down the pit. Um, and if you were semi-bright, you went down the pit and you got an apprenticeship as you know, an engineer or yes. an electrician or something like that. And if you were particularly bright, you might get a job in the civil service. But there was there was just... And the good thing about those days is, you know, if you were on the door, nobody gave you a hassle. Um, nobody stopped your benefits. And stuff like yes. that. You, were able, you were able to do music um, whilst you, you were unemployed. But the, I mean, the good thing about that period of the 80s was that you, know, you could move to London and you could live relatively cheaply. There was lots of beds there. Um, there was lots of small music venues. Um, everybody tended to gravitate to London that wanted to be in a band. So as soon as you got there, there were, there were bands that you could join. There was bands that you could go and see. Rehearsal rooms were fairly cheap. Recording rooms were still fairly cheap. Um, you know, there was this whole DIY subculture. Yeah. But to be, on, be honest with you, um, I was just so excited when I moved to London, going to see bands um, every night. I ended up DJing in a, in a nightclub. The, the idea of being in a band, um, it just wasn't at the forefront of my mind, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, just, I just enjoying life. Well, as, as you can imagine, you know, I'd grown up. Oh, you've you've just faded. Uh, your your Wi-Fi connection was a bit gone. Oh well, I do live in the middle of nowhere. Um, <laughs> no, it's back though. Don't worry, it's good. So, yeah, I mean, it, you know, there were gigs, but if you wanted to go to gigs, probably Durham University was the nearest place. But that was, you know, was was you might be able to get a bus back there, but you, you, we tended to have to walk back. So you, you'd have an eight mile walk back if you wanted to go to a gig. Whereas, you know, I moved to London and there was just gigs on every every single night. 
And I, and it really was going to gigs every single night of the week. Yes. Um, and did you feel, because that's quite a brave thing to do in those days, is just to sort of ups, up and go somewhere, because it's not like now where you can even just go and, I don't know, go to Google Maps and look at the place, you know, to go to London and, and sort of just turn up there and and sort of and be quite an outsider you do you know it does it does bring the image of the small town boy from the uh, was it the Bronsky beat into mind as you sort of rushed down to london to find your fame and fortune but did you did you sort of feel like you were you on your own doing that because it did seem still seems quite brave no i mean i um my girlfriend at the time got a um uh, a post as a nurse, a, a trainee nurse. Oh, crikey. Um, my, my girlfriend got a job as a trainee nurse in Tooting. Um, so she'd moved to Tooting to, to study nursing. Um, and I originally went to move to Bishop Stortford uh, and got a job labouring uh, at Stansted Airport, uh, just working on the runway there. And did that for a while and saved up some money and then moved to London. But it just, I, I didn't really find it a big place. It didn't seem like a big place, which sounds strange, but I think the the gig going in the indie world in London at the time wasn't actually that big. It was just the same smallish group of people going to gigs, and you'd just see the same people at gigs night after night after night and started talking to them and they started talking to you. So there was a very small indie community within London. Everybody knew everybody else. I just, I don't know, it was really strange. Yes. I I, I found that I, I, I found my place within that community fairly quickly. Yeah, and do you start running into people and you think, oh, because I know I, I sort of spoke to um, Johnny Johnson from the Sidleys, and she had quite a similar story, sort of going to London to form a band and going to gigs every night and living cheap, but it was kind of like, it did sound a bit grim at times as well, and kind of, yes, strange. I mean, it was. I mean, it, London's a very different place now, um, you know, very gentrified, but I started going to gigs and I saw people handing out leaflets before gigs uh, and I got talking to one of the guys who was handing out leaflets and and I, I discovered something absolutely incredible was that a promoter would give you £5 to hand out leaflets to people as they were going into the gig, £5 to hand out leaflets to people after the gig and would let you into the gig for nothing. So uh, I, that was like, so all I had to do is hand these people leaflets, I'm going to get £10 and I'm going to get into the gig for nothing that I was going to pay to go into. Uh, so that's how it worked. So I just started handing out leaflets. And because you're handing out leaflets outside of gigs every single night to people on the way in and on the way out, you just start talking to people. And then you just saw the same people over and over again every night. Yes. Uh, and suddenly you had this network of friends. Yes. So during the 80s period, did you start to become... Because I know that the great gatekeepers of that period were like people like John Peel and then the enemy, Melody Maker... Slightly sounds, but not so much. So were you sort of also picking up on that kind of network and, and sort of tuning in to the world of the Smiths and the June Brides, the go-betweens and all that other, you know, musical mayhem being made? I was a massive John Peel fan. I think everybody 
was that lived in you know small disconnected places because that was your window to the world and you you know you'd lie in bed with it with a transistor radio pressed up your ear at 10 10 o'clock at night as a 13 year old kid and hate these absolutely incredible records you know i mean 1978 there just seemed to be so many absolutely incredible singles um and these records had just come out and you'd hear them on on john pill and there was no internet there's no youtube you heard the song, you memorised the name of the band, and then at the weekend you'd go into. I would go into Sunderland where there were two or three record shops with a list of records that I wanted to buy, um, and we're just incredibly excited to get them home to hear them again because you've heard this song once and you think it's brilliant, but you've got to wait sort of four or five days before you can buy the single, and you've got to travel back on the bus home. Can't wait, and you've got four or five singles and you can't decide which one to listen to first. So yeah, that was really exciting. Um, but not so much the, I mean, the music papers didn't really connect with me because a lot of the bands that I liked didn't get written about in the music papers it was more venues in London um, the Falcon in, in Camden I went to regularly um, Jeff Barrett from he- Heavenly used to run it just used to put on the you know give you a leaflet with the, the gigs coming up for the next month and it'd be incredible bills um so, so it was yeah it was just really the, the, the um the, the black horse in in hampstead there, there were three or four smallish indie venues portland's um in houston where these bands Bay 63 in west london where these bands played over and over and over again, there was a small circuit. It was just the same people going to these gigs night after night. So it was more that that I connected to than um, than the music papers. Yes, it was, it was the you, gigs that I could use. Did you go to the Alan McGee Club, which I think is called the Living Room? I might have got that wrong now, but I just remember that was quite one that gets mentioned a lot in this story of the C eighty six world. I think um, yes, Alan McGee's early years of indie pop. <laughs> Not really, because I, I just that whole C eighty six thing. Those weren't really the bands that I was that interested in at the time. I was never a Smiths fan. I, 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 I probably have got a couple of Smiths records, but I, I, I never. I don't think I ever saw the Smiths live. Um, I was a big television personalities fan. Uh, my bloody Valentine, I was just like mass- massively into um, back in sort of 86, 87, um, early Primal Scream, the Pascals, that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Yes. So then how did you start to, um, how did you sort of find yourself, you know, A, playing music and then being in a band, The Field Mice? Um kind of roundabout route uh, after after we'd been to gigs you know when you're young you've still got loads of energy you want to go on somewhere else after a gig and we started going to clubs but the, the, the nightclubs in London at the time really dreadful this is like the, the limelight and uh, just places playing goth music or the tail end of goth music um, there weren't really any indie clubs we used to go to this bar in Oxford Street called Syndrome, uh, which was a, a club on a Thursday night, which 
great venue, right bang in the middle of the west west end of London. Great bar, lovely decor. They just played dreadful music, and a lot of music industry people and and bands used to go and hang up hang out there on a Thursday night. Uh, and we used to badger the DJ, me and a small group of friends, to to play music that we were into. Uh, and he just didn't have any. So we, we said, can we can we bring our records? If we bring our records, will you play them? And he said, well, yeah, but if you're going to bring your records, you might as well just play them yourself. So I ended up DJing at this at this club called Syndrome, which which went on to be really, really famous. Um, you have bands like you know, Fledgling Blur, uh, Ride, kids like that. You'd be there every Thursday night. So I was just DJing there, and somebody who ran a music magazine, it was called Lime Lizard, asked me to write about this scene that was still really underground, but incredibly popular. You know, the, the nightclub, the club nights would be full. We'd be turning people away every. We went from having nobody there the first two two weeks to within sort of six weeks packed. You know, people queuing up when we got there at sort of ten thirty, waiting to get in. Because we were the only people playing the Smiths and REM and James and bands like that, as, as well as um, bands like My Bloody Valentine, uh, Loops, Basement 3, all that sort of stuff. And he asked me to write an article about this, this fledgling music scene and indie scene that the music papers didn't seem interested in. And I, I, I drew up a list of bands that I wanted to speak to and interview, and one of them was the Field Mice, who... I thought were fantastic, even though they'd only made a couple of records. Um, so I went, to, I went to watch them at the Falcon. They were a, a two-piece at the time. They were dreadful live, absolutely dreadful, as, as bad as a band as I'd seen. Was it uh, just how many How many members were in the field mice at that stage? It was just Bobby and Michael and the drum machine, which kept breaking down. Right. Um, so I saw them a couple of times. They, they were really bad. They just looked like they didn't want to be there. Uh, didn't look like they should be in a band. They just looked really awkward, very badly dressed, uh, which I quite liked. Yeah. So I got to, I got talking to Bobby and I said I'd like to interview with this magazine. He's quite excited about that. And he arranged to come round my flat. And to be honest, we just went through my record collection and talked about other bands for about three hours. So I t- started thinking about writing up this interview. And I, there wasn't anything to write about other than which of my records he liked. So I set up another meeting with him at his place and went round. And we did exactly the thing, same thing in reverse. We talked about his record collection for about three hours. Uh, and I said, look, if there's anything I can do to help you progress as a band, uh, just let me know. Yeah. Did you see, did, did you see kind of potential there? Because it sounds like... You know, oh, when... massively. I, the records I absolutely loved... Um, and you know, he said that that Harvey Williams from Another Sunny Day was joining them as guitarist, so they were expanding to a three-piece. But he wanted a female singer, and he wanted a drummer. They wanted to be a proper band, and you know, they wanted to play gigs and tour. Yeah. And he said it's just it's really uncomfortable with the two of us and a drum machine. We just feel really exposed. Whereas if we're a proper band with a drummer and another singer. That takes some of the pressure off me, um, and I think we'd be a lot more relaxed. So my intention at that point was, I knew quite a few music promoters. You know, I was teaching two, three nights a week. I knew a lot of people um, 
they, they put on bands at the sort of places they could play. So it's really a management role that, that I was suggesting to him, which he obviously got completely the wrong end of the stick because I got a letter off him a week later saying, I'd like to take you up on, on your offer. Um, will you play drums for us? And I was like, I don't know where that came from. I don't think I ever mentioned playing drums. I just said, if I can help you out. And he assumed that that was what I meant. <laughs> um, so I, I thought about it for a couple of weeks and I was trying to think of a way to, to say no politely. Um, and my girlfriend just said, you might as well just join them. You can't make things any worse because she'd seen them as well. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I said, OK. And I, myself and Anne-Marie, who joined the band on, on the same day, met them in a pub in Mitcham and that was it. It was sort of in the band. And at the time, they were still... I didn't think it was a big deal because they hadn't released that many records and they were still a fairly unknown band. They hadn't played live a lot. Yeah. And then the next 18 months were just crazy, really. Just so like, so when so when the... Was it a five-piece by then? I'm sort of slightly... Um, yes. There was... Yeah, so they very quickly went from a two-piece to a three-piece to a five-piece. Yes. It, it, that all happened in a fairly short space of time. I think Harvey had helped them out with a couple of recordings, but they wanted to play live and they wanted to be a proper live band, uh, not just a you know ramshackle, two people in a drum machine. And that happened really quick, really quickly. We started rehearsing. We did a fairly quickly arranged UK tour, which was very hit and miss. Uh, we just plodded on for about six months, rehearsing a lot, writing songs. Bobby was prolific. Every time we went to rehearsal, he'd written more new songs. Uh, and then there was just a, a really... 1991 was just was just crazy, really. Uh, we went from being a really small underground band playing to maybe 100 people in London to you know being on the cusp of signing to a major record label. And it, it happened really quickly, far too quickly for us. And we you know, we should really have had we didn't have management and we should have had because somebody should have just sat us down and said, What do you want to do with this? Where do you want to go? Because we thought we knew what we wanted, but when we got to where we we thought we wanted to be, we realised that we, we didn't want to be there. Um, and we and we split up you know, very, very quickly. Just, to, you know, we had a meeting with a label at a gig in Glasgow and Bobby just said, uh, I'm, I'm, that's it, it's over, it's finished. Uh, so, so it, you know, we, we, we got bigger very quickly and split up very quickly. Yes, because most, most bands... You know, like I don't know the indie world. Five years seems to be kind of the the, the normal time for for people to do things. You know, they get together and make a, a sound after about a year, which which is becomes quite presentable. And then you know, if it's a bit quirky, John Peel played it. Then John Peel's session, the first album, a bit more touring around the country. And often it's the second album that finishes most a lot of bands, or if they ever play America. But you your your time was incredibly short because you weren't in the band. With Anne Marie that long, really, were you? Uh, about a year and a half. So I think the band overall was in existence for about three years. 
and the last year and a half as a five piece, we seem to make a lot of records. We seem to do a lot of record and play a lot of gigs. Um, and then of course, Miss and the Moon got single of the week in the enemy whilst we were away tour in France. The album took off. It, suddenly people were wanting to talk to us. People want people writing to us. Major labels were interested. You know, we had a meeting set up with Island Records to discuss the possibility of signing to them. And before the before the meeting, meeting had even taken place, we, we'd split up. Yes. So we, we went, I mean, we were in France when we got Single of the Week in NME, and the, the French tour was, we were always bigger in France than we were in the UK, and the French tour was going really, really well, playing to big shows to lots of people, and, you know, Claire was, had come over to Paris for the, one of the second off last night of the French tour and said, oh, it's gone crazy in England as well. You've got Single of the Week in the enemy. Um, the music papers are wanting to interview you. Um, we've got agents wanting to put on gigs. And I've, I've arranged another tour of the UK for when you get back. And we sort of said, well, we're too tired. We all had day jobs other than Bobby. I can't understand why you've arranged another tour for when we got get back because we're pretty burnt out already and we foolishly just went along with it on this roller coaster ride uh, and did another tour when we came back which we should never have done you know we were going to work in London finishing work sort of four or five o'clock jumping in a van driving down to Brighton playing a gig getting back two o'clock in the morning going to work the next day jumping back in the van at five o'clock driving to Oxford playing a gig in Oxford coming back to London doing another day's work, driving to Bristol, getting back four in the morning. Uh, so just really tired and then went sort of Manchester, Liverpool, Glasgow. And that was just the, the final straw, really. So we got to the point where things were happening for us and we were suddenly having success. And I think if if we'd been on a bigger label, Missing the Moon would have, would have gone into the charts. But we, you know, we're on a label that... But I think it sold 10,000 copies, which is pretty incredible, really. But we were on a label that couldn't press them fast enough for us to get into the charts. I think we made the midweek charts, but not the end of the week charts, because they'd run out of vinyl for the shops. Uh, so we'd gone from that, and two weeks later we'd split up. Yes, that must be kind of heartbreaking. It was just a bit of a waste, really. But again, we didn't have management. We didn't have anybody to sit, sit us down. And because we had these... Really difficult choices to make. Were we going to do the band full time? Were we going to sign to a bigger label? Were we going to sign to a major label? I think Bobby just thought the easiest, rather than make a difficult choice, the easiest thing to do was just to walk away from the band. Uh, and it was, it, you know, we split up that night in Glasgow, but contractually we still had another gig to do in London a week later. Uh, and we couldn't really afford not to do the gig. So we ended up playing a gig a week after we'd split up, which was, I think, captured on video, but it was, was really, really difficult. And that was the last time the five of us were in the same same room together. Yes. Well, that must be very tricky. I always remember there was a documentary on the Eagles one when they were splitting up, possibly for one of the first times. And, and apparently... <laughs> that people were having an argument on stage and the guitarist knew he was going to get beaten up at the end of a song so he edged towards the edge you know the stage and then just chucked his guitar and ran like hell while the <laughs> other members ran after him so that was quite spectacular what what was it like knowing that 
the band had finished, even though you you still had to go on this date? Well, I mean, we, did, we split up before the gig we played in Glasgow. So the gig we played in Glasgow was horrendous. I'd just gone to the train station and I was just trying to get a train back to London. I didn't even want to play the gig. I just wanted to go back home. Um, had a, we just had a, me and my girlfriend had just had a, a baby. Um, I just wanted to go home. I just wanted to see her. I wanted to see the baby. I'm sick of them. Sick, thoroughly sick of the band. Tired. Not been sleeping. I hadn't slept properly for weeks. Uh, and the last train had already gone. So I had to go back to the venue and play the gig. It was a really ill-tempered gig. There was talk about punches being exchanged. I don't think it ever got that far. Um, but I know we, after we'd gone off stage, people were wanting an encore and half of the band wanted to go on and do the encore and the other half didn't. Uh, the, the last gig in London, as I say, a week after we'd split up, that there is video footage of it. You just see Bobby and Amory are on one side of the stage. Michael and Harvey are on the other side of the stage. I, I'm tucked somewhere at the back. And the, the, you know, it's just like watching two bands in, in one, really. Uh, there's very little said. Just think, Mike, at the end of the gig, Michael just said the end. Uh, we walked off stage, and like I say, I don't think. Well, I know the five of us have never been together since, which is quite strange, really, because we've all been in bands with each other. Yes. Subsequently, and I don't think I don't think we've actually fallen out with each other as such. I mean, certainly, Bobby's made records with every with all the other four members of the band since then. Uh, but now it's just I don't know. You, it got to the point where we were just friends in a hobby band that that were having a little bit of success, and then suddenly we were. It was just a job. Uh, and you know you, you end up losing friendships over it, which is which is a really sad thing. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I guess you gain gain bad valuable experience, and you know I'm doing a record label at the moment with with young bands, and I think you've got a bit of experience there that you can pass on to them. Yes, well, quite. I mean, it was. Did you? I mean, because at the time, you know, the Sarah Record phenomena, you know, was just kind of like one of those labels but since then it has just grown in its stature hasn't it there's like a book there's a film lots of compilations you know a lot of people now love Sarah Records that probably you know without getting biblical probably didn't like it at the time but then sort of go oh no I'm going to turn and say they were great they were my favorite label um so did you were you kind of aware of that kind of strange kind of media slightly you know bitchiness about Sarah Records Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, I I loved the label, um, and as I say, I ended up in a band because I I wanted to write about some of the bands that were on the label because they weren't getting any coverage in the mainstream music press, or the coverage that they were getting was really dismissive. The only people were even listening to the music were just taking a look at the sleeves or the names and and attacking the music on that basis. But I I really loved certainly the. Uh, the early stuff, the first 20, 30 singles are an absolutely fantastic body of work. I mean, not all of it, some of it hasn't um, aged as well as others. But, and again, it, it once you got into it and you started going to see the bands, it, it felt like a little community. It felt like something special. It felt like we were doing something that the outside world didn't really understand. 
and I got the feel, I, I got the, the sense of what it must have been like for the early punk bands in, in sort of 75, 76, when they had this fairly small movement with, with maybe only sort of 30 or 40 main players playing to the same small group of people. And it, and it did feel very much like that, that it was us against the rest of the world. Uh, and every bad review or dismissive view, review that you got in the music press just seemed to spur people on. We kind of fed off it. To be honest with you, I think if the music press had, had been fair with the, the label and that, and, and it reviewed the releases fairly, it probably wouldn't have been as successful as it was. That said, the field mice tended to get one, one of the few bands on the label that tended to get fair press. You know, we got single of the week in Melody Maker two or three times, single of the week in the NME. We were kind of the kind of the exception to the rule, in that most of the press that we got was was really positive. So when the, so, I was going to say when and when the band finished, you then with a couple of the other members formed a band, Yesterday Sky, that went on to become Northern Picture Library. So how long did that? How long? How quickly did that take to um, sort of develop? Yeah, well, I kind of felt a bit in the middle, to be honest with you, because I, I worked with Michael and I was really, really close to Michael. Um, and, and the main divide in the band was between him him and Bobby. And, you know, they'd, they'd gone to, grown up together, they'd gone to the same school together, they'd formed the band together. Uh, and after the field, my split, Michael went off to move to France to, to go to university in France. And I, I was always really, really close to Anne-Marie and still am. And kept in touch with her. And she said she'd done the, the Yesterday Sky thing with, Northern Sky thing, sorry, with with Bobby. And she said, Bobby's still writing songs, but he's, he's got no confidence. He doesn't know what to do with the songs. He kind of is a bit lost. Would you be able to help him out? I said, yeah, yeah, send the demos. So she sent me some demo tapes. I sent them off to a couple of labels. Uh, this guy called Tetsuya in, in Japan, who I knew was setting up a, a label in England. And he really liked it. He liked the idea of having you know, a band on the label that was that was former Field Mice. Uh, I think he he had he signed Hal, who were, used to be brighter. Because uh, I, was, I was well connected with 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 them, Alex in particular, the bass player, and the Sweet Steak ended up on Vinyl Japan. So I sent these demos off, got us a, a meeting with Tets in Camden, which went pretty well. And the Northern Picture Library was sort of born out of that. So that was just the three of us initially, myself, Bobby and Anne-Marie. Uh, and that went pear-shipped fairly quickly as well. Uh, I, I really, really like the first. Uh, the, well, there's only one Northern Picture Library album, Alaska. I, I really, really like that album. I think it stood the test of time quite well. Um, but that was just, it was just a really bad band to be in. Really, really bad band to be in. Uh, I don't think any of us were particularly well at the time mentally, and you know, just the, that band split really acrimoniously. And, uh, you know, my relationship with Bobby was pretty much done after that band split. 
we, we exchange emails every now and again, but I mean, I haven't seen it for seven years. Yes, difficult. Well, that, that's the nature of bands, unfortunately. You know, one, one of the downsides is that you can lose friendship as, as a result of them. Yes. But, but again, I mean, I can understand now with hindsight why once bands get to a certain level, they need management. You know, they, they need, well, you, you said it yourself, you, you only need to watch, you know, two or three rock do documentaries on BBC Four on a Friday night to, to, see, to see how acrimonious things can get and how important the, the, the management role is. Yes, well, quite. So I guess that's why when quite a few members went on to form the next band from the Ashes, Trembling Blue Stars, you were definitely not part of that one, were you? No, definitely not. Um, most certainly not. Although their website did, did credit me with being a member. No, I mean, Bobby and myself had, uh, had pretty much stopped talking by that point. Um and he actually, I think he actually arranged to make a Tremble of Blue Stars album whilst still in the Northern Picture Library without telling me, which is another bone of contention. So he went off and did this, the first Tremble of Blue Stars album, which was just him and the acoustic guitar singing songs about Anne-Marie, and I really hated it. And it was a, a backward step from Alaska and wasted, yes. no time, wasted no time in telling him. So I'd started a band, Picture Centre was my brother by that point uh, and I don't think he was a massive fan of the, of the music I was doing so there was a kind of mutual disrespect there but yeah again he eventually he worked with Harvey and Michael and Anne-Marie um, and over time I thought the, the album they did for Sub Pop was a really really good album and again I told him as much Yes and were you I mean during all this time I mean you had that kind of the end of the indie world, then a bit of the dance world of the late 80s, then grunge and then Britpop. I mean, was, was any of that kind of filtering into the band or were you just so focused on what you were doing that kind of was passing you by? I just wondered because obviously suddenly there were bands on the Britpop period that you thought, my God, it, there, was, there were certain bands that had been around in the 80s that must have looked and went, oh my God, we, we should be on top of the pops selling thousands and... Um, at least getting paid some more money than we did back in the 80s. I just wondered if you were sort of looking and thinking, oh, shoot, we should have been there. No, we just, I mean, we hated all of that stuff. Uh, you know, really hated it. I mean, the Northern Picture Library album was influenced by bands like AFX Twin, Future Sound of London, My Bloody Valentine. I mean, it was a really, really non-commercial album. I, I rem In fact, I remember whilst we were recording some of it in the studio with Bobby, just shaking my head and thinking, nobody's going to buy this. Absolutely nobody's going to buy this. We're going to alienate almost everybody that's bought Field Mice Records. Um, this album's just going to form. We're going to sell you know, minimal numbers of, of records. But we didn't really care, to be honest with you. But we've, we've got a lot more money from Violent Japan to record something than we've ever had with Sarah. And we just thought, well, we might as well make a record that we're really going to like and we're going to be quite proud of than jump on a bandwagon and um, get smart, trendy haircuts. We were never good-looking enough to be part of Britpop, to be honest with you. 
so that gets just completely passed us by. Um, I mean, I think after Northern Picture Library split, I didn't buy that many records. In fact, if it wasn't for you know the Glasgow bands and the Chemical Underground bands, I think I would have stopped buying records altogether. You know, from sort of '95 to 2000, I was only really listening to Alan Sebastian, Mogwai, Arab Strap, the Delgados. You know, they, I'd gone from buying records in large volumes religiously to the point where there were only about six or seven bands that I actually liked. Uh, went to very few gigs. Um, yeah. Just, just, you know, Britpop, I just, I don't know. Just, I, just, I just found the majority of it absolutely dreadful. <laughs> I guess there's also that. Um, yeah, so with, with your, so the honeymoon of music, the music world has severely died at that stage. So look, your new musical adventure then, because you're still in the, the business, so to speak, aren't you? Yeah, kind of. So I've, I, after after Picture Sent, I finished um, sort of around 2003, 2004. I wasn't listening to a lot of music. As I say, there were probably eight or nine bands that I was into. Uh, and I just went off and did other stuff. I, I, I was always, from going back into my punk days, really interested in graffiti, um, vandalism. And I got back into graffiti in a big way uh, and kind of came back around to music six, seven years ago. And foolishly decided to uh, to start a record label about a year ago. Um, so, yeah. Excellent. This is good. And has it gone well? I mean, now that you're on the other side, do you think? Oh God, no. <laughs> so I spoke to um, I spoke to Sean Price from Fortune of Pop, who I know well. He's a great guy, and I had a meeting with him when I was first chewing over the the idea of starting a record label. And he said to me, "Do not do it." But he did give me a list of things to not do. Um, if I did decide to go through with it, uh, which was really, really helpful advice. So, yeah, I started a record label. Um, so the last, last couple of weeks, I've been folding sleeves and putting inserts into bags and putting pink vinyl records and download well, download codes. What, what, what even are download codes? Um, it's just... Uh, it feels like the same industry in some ways in that you've just got to sell records and sell t-shirts and play gigs the same as you've always done but all this digital stuff bandcamp soundcloud spotify it, that just all goes over the top of my head um so i've got a small group of young people who, who are kind of more clued up about that uh, that i'm working with uh and it, it's quite exciting because our first single's out in, in a couple of weeks' time, 24th of October. Uh, and, yeah, it, it's kind of exciting, but it's, it's a lot harder work than I thought it would be. And, you know, I always knew from being quite close to Matt and Claire for a while at, at Sarah just how much of a bedroom enterprise it is. But I just, I'd underestimate how mind-numbingly boring 
handfold and 500 pictures places <laughs> <laughs> and then putting them into bags and yeah that's so kind of kind of excited about it but there's a lot of lot of groundwork needs to be done before before you actually start releasing yes well i could imagine so look just lastly before this connection slightly fades too much i mean just so what what would you i mean because you're your musical journey is quite extraordinary from the, those early years in a northern town to sort of London to the famous Field Mice and Sarah Records. Just briefly, what did their fashion sense improve? Bobby and Michaels? Yeah. God, no. <laughs> um, well, no, we weren't, we just weren't, I, you know, we talked about the Britpop bands and Bands get that. There were bands getting deals just based on their haircuts and what what clothes they had written songs. Um, Michael just looked like um, one of the Beach Boys, and um, Bobby just just didn't care. I just didn't care about clothes, fashion. It just completely and utterly absorbed by music. Um, so did our fashion sense? It probably did. I probably did, David. I think certainly the last couple of tours that we did, we were a bit more conscious um, of, of how we presented ourselves. I don't think we ever we ever got to the stage where we sat and thought about what we were going to wear. I mean, there's a really I, I remember playing the um, shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. Uh, we played we played the Bull and Gate in Kentish Town at a Sarah night and. Um, there was us, Brighter, and the sea urchins. Big. There was a fairly big sea urchins field mice rivalry, um, and they turned up in a van, demanded the dressing room, and they had costumes. They had like cowboy outfits that they were <laughs> that they were going to get changed into before they went off stage, um, which I just found absolutely absurd and and frankly quite hilarious that they were going to get changed into costumes before they went on stage so no we i think we were slightly more savvy by by the end but not to the point where we ever uh, thought it's an idea to wear cowboy outfits for this next gig yes wow that's that is bizarre and did you feel like you could hold your own on stage at that stage you know that point with cowboys as a support band well it was a, it was, it was a really strange night because um, I think we were meant to be headlining, and that was certainly the way it was billed. But Sea Urchin said that they were going to drive back to Birmingham. Right. If they didn't get the dressing room and they weren't headlining. So I think that night we actually went on first. I think we played about quarter to eight at night, uh, which didn't go down too well with the people who were arriving sort of half nine um, to find out that we'd already we'd already been on and played. Yes, well, quite. It sounded like the Live Aid thing with Ultravox and, <laughs> and, and uh, the Boomtown Rats, didn't it, really? The mysterious moment. I think, I mean, the good thing about the Sarah thing, joking aside, was that the bands generally all got on really well with each other. You know, if we were cleared up in Glasgow, we would sleep on the floor of the Wicks' parents' houses. And likewise, if they were playing in London, they would, they would, they would stay with us. So I think, generally speaking, the bands got on really, really well. As I say, it, it did at times feel like us against the world. And I think there were only really a couple of rivalries. 
I wasn't a massive fan of. I, I really like the Sea Urchins records, but I wasn't a fan of them as people. Um, and I think there was a a spat between the, the Orchids and the Sweeter Steak uh, over some missing marijuana at a gig in somewhere. <laughs> but generally speaking, no, we we all really got on. <laughs> um, most of the, you know, we we played a lot of. If we were out touring and we were travelling, you know, if we were playing up in Leeds, then you know, gentle despite who were from Leeds and from Sarah would play with us. If we were up in Glasgow, then, then the Orchids of the Wake would play with us. Yeah. Uh, when, when we played in Bristol, Sweet Estate would play with us. So it it, it generally was like uh, if you were playing, there'd quite often be another Sarah, at least one other Sarah band, and sometimes two Sarah bands on the label, on the on the bill. So we got on up largely really really well and there, there weren't any egos yes i mean the one thing that and you'll probably remember this when you were growing up you'd hear bands talking about you know why they got into rock and roll musicians they'd always go well it's sex drugs and rock and roll which obviously kind of they decided they should stop saying that for various reasons um because they'd probably all be in prison but did was there much drug taking and drinking that went on in the kind of the sarah record Field mice world. No, um, the orchids could drink. Crikey, yeah, the orchids could drink. Um, Matthew and Moody in particular, they were incredible drinkers. Incredible amount. Um, no, I think the field mice didn't drink. Yes, um, and and a lot of the Sarah bands that we played with didn't either. Um, yeah, so it wasn't like backstage, you know, mountains of sort of. Hash and speed, and you know, special brew or vodka going down. No, oh God, no, absolutely not. Um, you know, I've toured with a lot of those bands, and that just wasn't really why people were in it. Yes, there were, in, there were quite a lot of interband relationships, which I only found about out about later in the day. Um, so I think there were quite a few people getting off with each other. Yeah. So there was a little um, bit of the Fleetwood Mac, but with different bands, a cross band. Yes, across the label. Yes, <laughs> there, there, was, there, was, there was a fair bit of that. Oh, nice. I, I was quite oblivious to. Like, see, I was in, I was in a relationship. Yes. I was just massively into music uh, and was re- enjoying it for what it was. You know, playing gigs, lots of young people at the gigs. Dressing rooms after the gig would be just full of all the people that had been to the gig. You know, it was a very, there was none of the, them and us. Yeah. It was very much an open, open door policy. Uh, you'd just be sitting talking to people that come to see you. Uh, but yeah, yeah, there was a bit of um, there was a bit of Fleetwood Mac going on. I'm not going to name any names, but yeah. God, that's exciting. Look, just, yeah, well, actually, I suppose it would have um, inspired a few of the songs that were written because it was kind of angsty, wasn't it? And romantic melancholia was quite strong, I guess. And, yeah, uh, I, 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 there are definitely Field My songs which, which are relationship-based. Yes. Well, I, I, think, I think there are also Field My songs, which, which was very unusual at the time. Maybe not so much now, but back in the 80s. I mean, you, you know. Always writing songs like This Love Is Not Wrong, or So Said K, which are about same sex relationships, or Song Six, which is about domestic violence. Um, and indie bands, generally speaking, didn't write about those sort of things. So I, I, I think there was always a side to his song, songwriting which, which was complex and which touched, touched subjects that other bands 
weren't talking about. And that perhaps explains the longevity of the field mice in particular, because you still get young people contacting you all the time. I mean, my kids are in their 20s now, and they've had people come up to them of their age group and saying, I can't believe your dad was in the field mice. Wow, why didn't you tell me that? <laughs> yeah, And I think the music and the lyrics in particular still have a resonance for people, for young people these days, because they, they touch on subjects that that affect young people. Yes, well, I was just, I was just actually looking at the Spotify monthly playlist of the Field Mice, and it's 50,000 a month, which is quite extraordinary, really. I mean, that's that's a lot of listeners who are um, in Dale, you know, just keeping it real. So what would you say to your kind of an 18-year-old self that was starting out in that interesting world that is rock and roll? Get management. <laughs> if your band gets to a certain, a certain level of popularity, um, you definitely, definitely, definitely need to take advice from people who are older than you, who've experienced this sort of stuff before and can give you sensible words of advice. Unfortunately, a lot of young people don't want to do that. They don't want to take advice from you know, somebody in their 40s or 50s who's been down that road before. Yes. Um, but that's, that, for me, was something that we, we definitely should have had and I think if we had have had it, we'd have made a lot more records. Yeah. Probably have made better records than than we did. So yeah. that, that's yeah, that's definitely the one piece of advice that I would have given my eighteen year old self if I, yeah. I could go back and but just lastly, you must still feel very chuffed that the field mice have created that legacy because obviously a lot of bands do just kind of disappear a bit, whereas you know you're you're sort of as popular now, or probably more so than you were then. Yeah, and I think that's maybe in part because we've there's still a lot of mystique around the band. We we hated having it, but like I said to you before, we weren't into fashion. We hated having our photos. There were very few photos of the band in, in circulation. That tends to be the same, you know, sort of five or six photos that crop up time and time again. So we hated having our photos taken. And likewise, there were no videos for the singles. That There's some shaky video footage of the last gig we ever did. Uh, there aren't a lot of interviews with the band. We've never reformed. We don't talk about the band a, a great deal. So I think there's there's also this air of mistake around the band. Maybe to explain some of the, the ongoing popularity. Yes. Because you know the, the records are hard to get. There's not a lot of information about about the band, and that's kind of cool in a way. Um, and I'm not suggesting that the whole nostalgia circuit and bands reforming and playing sort of 20, 30 years after they split up is wrong, because if, if they get enjoyment from it and they, and they can make money or make a living out of it, I don't have any issue with, with that whatsoever. But it's, I think people know that with a field mice, that's never going to happen. We're never going to play live again. We're never going to reform again. We're never, I, I can't see a situation where the five of us are ever going to be even in the same building at the same time as each other again. Yes. And maybe that adds a little bit of extra mis mistake. I don't yes. know. 
How, how do you feel about that? I mean, I went to see who. I mean, I've seen a few bands recently from the eighties. I went to see very, very foolishly went to see Stereo Lab, who actually you know, one of my favourite bands of all time. And I went to see the reformed Stereo Lab in Manchester a few months ago. And it was absolutely dreadful. I just thought I shouldn't. This is this is spoiler to me in 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 some ways. You know, why why are they doing this? They were absolutely awful. Um, I went to see the Primitives last week, and uh, I was never a big Primitives fan to be honest with you. It was just I was in London on Tuesday night, and I was looking for a gig to go to, and that that that, that one was on. Um, I don't know. I, I, what, how, do you, do you think it's a good idea for bands to be from 20, 30 God, years? Well, it, yeah. it's, a, it's an interesting, it's a tricky one, really, because I sort of have a, have that conversation with myself occasionally and um, and sort of, yes, I, I sort of, I get really confused about it sometimes. I sometimes think, like you just said, you know, if they want to do it and they enjoy it, then what the hell, you know, let them do it. I suppose as a fan, I'm a little bit, I don't know. I'm also really kind of like I get quite stuck just thinking about it emotionally because because I think with some bands, you know, as as an example, the Rolling Stones, they've just done it, haven't they, from start to finish. They haven't. They've just kind of kept rolling on. So in a way, mm. you've kind of grown up watching them growing old. I think when a band has been away for a long period of time and then they think, oh, I'll reform and come back or do some gigs. I think there is a few sh- shocks. I think sometimes you think you can't recognise the band, which I know doesn't shouldn't be a big thing, but it's a bit like, oh, crikey, is that is that the original members? You know, blimey, they're just all, I you know, because I've only seen them from 1987, you know, where they're all skinny little kids to these kind of like old chaps, you know, and suddenly you're thinking, ah, oh, okay. And, you know, because the songs had that kind of breezy, you know, I'm talking about the indie world especially, you know, that breezy kind of, enthusiastic quality played by you know 18 20 year olds not by 50 year olds and sometimes I realized that there's been a few gigs at the Norwich Arts Centre as an example and thought actually I'm not going to go because I think I could be depressed <laughs> well certainly I mean you know with with punk bands that I I grew, grew up listening to in my teens I, I, I mean I think that's a form of music that just really hasn't aged particularly well and you, you don't want to see blokes in their fifties and sixties, shouting about anarchy when they've got mortgages. Yeah, and I feel also that that sense of being in a crowd of old people as well, shouting lyrics. I find it's it's not it doesn't fill me with joy in life. It makes me feel a little bit, you know, like I quite like I still listen to a lot of that music, not all the time because I quite like listening, trying to find the next thing, which is seems to be harder with age. But then I'm just an old person now. But you know, it's it's kind of it is just a little bit of a tricky one yeah try you know because I think I don't want to relive my past but at the same time you know like you you know if, if someone wants to do it and they're doing it and there's there seems to be this 30 year moment where a lot of bands that I liked have been getting together and doing gigs and I think that's fantastic and occasionally doing a new EP or an album even I think that's all good I, I suppose it's part that part of the journey I'm not sure if I'm particularly part want to be that part of you know I'm curious to hear some yeah. of the new songs but it's that kind of somehow it's kind of been done and and you know it's and then I think of the stones and think well you just thought right this is our job until we literally die and, <laughs> yeah. and um, well I, I saw the Velvet Underground in 90 the early 90s yeah. when they, they reformed and did a couple of gigs and I thought they were brilliant and I, I, I thought that would be awful 
but I, I thought they were brilliant. But then I didn't see them. I was obviously too young to see them first time around. But you know, I think what you touched on there is, is, is more what I'm into is, is new music and new bands. And you know, that's part of the reason that I started the record label was because I'd found a couple of band, young bands, new bands that I was really, really into that didn't have the money and were struggling to get a record deal. And, you know, I spoke to them and thought, I'll put your records out. Foolishly said to them, I'll put your records out and then realised that they were going to hold me to it. Yes. Well, I think, um, yeah, and I, you know, and I like the idea that these two people, like, you know, there's quite a lot of people who are still putting records out. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. And they've got a day job, you know, and, you know, like, I don't know, Amelia Fletcher's in a band now and, and that, all looks really good but you know it's a new band and she's doing new materials I kind of think well that probably works better than trying to be Tallulah Gosh so you know yeah I, I don't think yeah you know in a way you think well at least that's like she's still they are still being relevant and they're still doing the creative thing and if she I, I have no idea you know if she does a play the occasional old classic but you know, I think that's good. And, you know, and then I think to myself, who am I, who the hell am I to judge all this? You know, it's up to people to do it. I'm, I'm just happy that anyone's doing anything when you get to a certain age. And, and if people want to reform and play in a, you know, a pub gig with a few, you know, doing their classics from 30 years ago, that's, that's all, all good as well. I suppose it's just sometimes I've, you know, I, yeah, I mean, the other night there was um, Richard Strange and various other people playing the music of Lou Reed. And I went there and, it was a funny atmosphere. There wasn't that many people, bizarrely, even though they had an amazing band of kind of, you know, people who'd played with Bowie and, and you know, that kind of calibre and and PJ Harvey. But it, it still felt a little bit flat, really. You know, there wasn't that many people. It didn't have that youthful energy that you had when you were watching bands as a team, watching young bands doing their thing for the first time and getting played on John Peel. So it, it's just, you know, it's, in, you know, it's... A, it's yeah, I mean, a, Mike, Michael and... Bobby from the Field Mice are still in bands and they're still making records and, and good luck to them. But I, 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 I feel, as you've just touched on there, that you know, pop music and you know, group music, or, you know, a, a combination of the two, it, it, it's something best played by young people, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it is funny. I did go and see Lloyd, Lloyd Cole a few years ago, probably two years ago, and it was kind of at times he did slightly have to explain that, you know, the, some of the lyrics that he was, you know, had written are a bit embarrassing to sing now, you know, probably about making love all night where you just think no. <laughs> at, yeah. at our age, you're just getting up and going to the toilet once or twice, mate. You're not, you know, yeah, making exactly. love. you're not making love all night. Let's be let's no. be completely honest about this, Lloyd. And he was aware of that as well. But, you know, the song sounded good and it was fine. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all fine in this world, in these political climates, what anybody does, which is musical and creative, is fine by me, really. Amen to that. <laughs> no. Anyway, look, I'm going I'm to have to have tea soon. But look, Mark, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. No problem. This no has problem been at all. And I'll keep in touch. And I'll, when I put this out, I'll send you a link and that'll be good. Okay. All right. Okay, well, take care then. And uh, yeah, thanks ever so much again. Take care. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye.